Henrik Fixeius is Sweden's most famous psychological manipulator, mental illusionist, and conveyor of knowledge of unconscious communication and influence. He has written 15 books that have sold more than 2 million copies and have been translated into 35 languages worldwide. His books on communication are used to train everyone, from international corporate leaders to therapists all over the world. Henrik also excels on stage, whether it be in the role of lecturer or of mentalist. He has been given six international and national awards for his performances. Henrik Vixeus, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. So, reviewing your body of work, which is extensive, and it's a field that not many of us know about, what is a mentalist? Right. It's like a magician. You mm -hmm. just explain what drew you to this. Wow, I think it was a lot of things. Well, first of all, as he correctly points out, a mentalist is a kind of a magician and illusionist. And a mentalist uses whatever techniques is at that person's disposal to create the illusion of being able to read minds or being, being able to contact the supernatural and whatever. The only rule is that that part is fake. But then you can use techniques from magic or from stagecraft or from psychology. Mentalist is really someone who creates this illusion of having an almost supernatural ability. Having said that, today a mentalist sort of has come to mean something else, mainly due to popular culture, TV series like The Mentalist and so on. And now there's this understanding of a mentalist, someone being able to read body language and influence behavior. It sort of ties into it all. And I've had a lifelong passion with magic. And it started when I was like seven, because I was always interested in the question what if what if there's a color in the sky that we can't see what if a handkerchief actually can vanish what does that mean in terms of how the world works so that was one part of it i always longed for there to be something else and i think one of the reasons for that was because i was should we say quite the the socially awkward child i didn't have the skill set to interact in a frictionless way with my classmates which meant that i was a weird guy i was the one who got beaten up every single day at school but i was also quite extroverted so i i didn't confine myself to my place in the corner i was still there every friday because on fridays there was like the open hour or what you call it in class where you can perform or just show something and i was always there doing magic because i had a skill that could do something that the other guys couldn't and then they beat me up again for it but i do think that that realization that there's something going on here I think that sort of set off something in my mind that it, this is something I need to solve. Also, I wanted to understand my bullies. How come that these persons, because of course they weren't 100% evil, but they were my friends and then suddenly they became evil. What happened? How can you know a normal 10-year-old or 15-year-old suddenly beat up someone else who he was just friends with? This wasn't a conscious reflection on my part, but it was there. It felt like Everyone else had been handed a handbook on social intelligence, basically. So after school, I started to study everything that had to do with what influences our choices and also language, because I understood that there is a language there. But for me, it was always very practical. So I studied theater first as an actor and then as a director, because suddenly you understand that, oh, hang on, if we do this with eyebrows on an actor, it will elicit a certain emotion in the audience. Hmm, interesting. I looked into media and religion and psychology to try to understand the mechanisms behind why we do the things we do. And it wasn't until I was like 34 or something that I realized that this is actually what I've been doing. And that's when I tied it into my interest with magic because then all of a sudden I realized that not only had I at least started to find the answers I was looking for, I actually knew quite a lot. To my big surprise, this 
was an area of interest that many people wanted to know about. I had no idea. I thought that everyone knew these things already, that everyone was just perfect into, you know, reading other people and understanding how the mind works. And so I thought it was just me being behind. And now all of a sudden I had things that I could teach other people. So many of us, when we're younger, we feel like we're alone, yeah. to use the title of your book, Trapped. You know, there's so much, the world is mysterious, and it's getting more difficult and more challenging for young people with each generation. So we do feel that isolation, and particularly very sensitive individuals, so often the more gifted, because they have a talent or because they're a little different, something sets them apart, can be bullied or stigmatized for, for their mm. talents. And so mm. we have to protect them. It's very interesting that you found ways to learn and protect. I think that anyone that I've spoken to of great talent or intelligence went through that period of going deep within themselves, even when they were quite young, questioning the systems without saying, does the world have to be this way? Yeah. Why is it this way? And I always feel like if you didn't go through that as a child, you're not going to mature very well. Well, you could still be a very happy person. <laughs> Oblivious and happy. No, but if it became so easy, you didn't have to work for it. Mm. And so, so much of this world is wonderful. There's this, as you say, there's just actually a sense of magic about the world, mm. the natural world. But so much of it doesn't really make sense. It's just like we say, that's how it was done. Yeah, and still is. Yeah. But we just ignore it as adults. Computer? Yeah, whatever. I don't know. It's sort of magic, but... It's amazing. I think it's really important. I think as a mentalist, as an illusionist, as a writer, you wear many hats as an actor, mm. director, we have to be able to have the strength to question our systems. Otherwise, we will be controlled by them and we are prey to being manipulated by them. Absolutely. Even if you want to follow the system, you should really know how it works. And if you want to break out of the system, you should even more know how it works. One of my sons is a jazz drummer and a brilliant jazz song or, or a brilliant movie script is one that knows the rules and knows which rules to break in order to make it something new and interesting. If you don't have that systematic knowledge, it will just be chaos. You know, there's nothing to hold on to. Understanding the system, but questioning the system. Systems are usually good, that's why they're there. We like systems, we like to have things in order. Our mind doesn't have to do so much heavy mental lifting. If we know that if I do this, then this happens. But you should always question it. Is it fun or could it be more fun to do something else? Indeed, and one of those central early systems of our system is our own mind. Right. Neuroscientists, spiritual leaders, they all say it in different ways, but the reality is a kind of mutually agreed upon hallucination. Mutually agreed upon is generous even there because mutually agreed upon sort of assumes that there's other people around in that hallucination that is not only yours, and it could very well be. You don't know. Right. Oh, yeah. And then you go into the idea that this is a simulation of the whole world. Yeah. That doesn't exist. That's something I was speaking to your fellow countryman, Nick Bostrom, about this. <laughs> yes. Fascinating theories. But no, we have this hallucination, the story of self, yeah. what's important. We have these belief systems, all these mm. systems. So in order to manipulate or shape, influence people, I guess it begins with knowing one's own mind. I would say that you are perfectly capable of manipulating or even controlling other people without knowing your own mind, without even being aware of that you're actually doing it. And I think that for most of us, that's exactly how it is. Just the spoken word, all communication is an attempt of influence and thereby manipulation and control. If I meet you in the street, I will put on a certain demeanor, I will smile, I will look in the eye, 
and when I say hi, because I want to elicit a positive response from you. That also means that I have influenced your emotional state. Basically, you can't communicate anything to anyone without in some way influencing their emotional state or their thought or their behavior. Communication, influence, manipulation, it's all part of the package. Our brains are hardwired to tap into this, to react to this. That's why marketing works so well. But the even the most evil marketing strategies are using the same psychological triggers and mechanisms as we do in everyday speech. I would say that the only way to sort of be responsible about how much you influence and manipulate other people and in which direction is to know yourself and is to be aware of these techniques that you are subconsciously using. Because then and only then can you make the conscious choice of doing this, but not perhaps doing that. Because that sets people off in the wrong way and you don't want that. I think everyone has been in a room and they just felt that, oh, that meeting was weird or they, there was just something off. And very often it might as well be you that was actually the cause of it, but you don't have a clue because you weren't aware of whatever was happening on a subconscious level in that situation. And there's so much more that comes in through the five or the six senses that we're not aware mm. of. We think about our senses as being isolated and they're often in concert. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All this calls up famous press conference when Donald Trump talked about using this kind of charisma or power mm. to make people believe. And he said, I could go out in the street, I could kill somebody and no one would do anything about it. And this made me think of a malign use of mentalism or something, that right. confidence. But a statement like that, that Trump did, is also very interesting. Let's say that he just, he didn't say that, he just went out and killed someone. Let's just assume that that happened. And then in a parallel universe, he did say that first. I could go out and kill someone, no one would touch me. And then he went out and killed someone. The results might vary just because of that statement. Because he now said that no one will touch me. That means that he has put a grain of thought in our minds. Well, oh, is that true or not? Yeah, maybe it is true because he's a man of authority and so on. So, hmm, maybe, so maybe we shouldn't touch him compared to if he had said nothing and just done the deed then everyone would just follow the law. I'm not saying it would be a completely different outcome, but it might have been just because of that statement. I don't know what books he has studied. Well, we know a little bit of his reading material, but the, some of the things that he does, I mean, it's just one example because it's quite extreme. When you're, you're planting seeds, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of things, like they say, it's hidden in plain sight, and or he says things like, why don't you go investigate that? Why don't you go through the records of Hillary Clinton? Or You're saying this to foreign powers. It's like, it seems like these are tricks of the, the trade. <laughs> it seems yeah, like a very... Yeah, because... Yeah, because planting. There's, there's no fire without smoke, right? Why should someone mention the records of Hillary Clinton if there wasn't anything there? Now, of course, in, in her case, now we're get, getting into politics. But I don't know how this works, say, when you're like on stage, mm -hmm. you're creating a yeah. program or even a book, which is another way of preparing the mind for a plot that will have an outcome. Yeah. Guiding our minds along the garden path. And there are all these subtle ways. I don't know what you'd like to share, but people are always fascinated by right. that. When it comes to writing, you mean? You know, any endeavor, it's planting that seed so that people make the decision that you have set out for them. Well, first of all, the more variables in a situation that you can control, the better chance you have of succeeding. If you are using this one technique, but the world is chaos and that person who you're talking to, you don't know, are they hungry? Did they just have an argument with their husband? You don't know what's going on in their head. But the more things you can take control of, the better for you, of course. And 
on stage, I can control basically everything in that room. So the only thing that I don't know really what it is, is the thought processes of the person that I bring up on stage. But everything else I've already controlled. I've controlled the, the temperature, the light, where we are in the show, the music, all of that. So now I only have to focus on the thought process. That person has no idea what's going to happen, which means that they're very vulnerable. Sometimes he could be very, very blunt if you would just give a very practical example. I'll get back to writing later because this isn't that interesting an example, but if I have like five objects on the table and I look you in the eyes and I say, just pick one, and I gesture with my hand towards one of the, the objects, chances are overwhelmingly that you will pick that object because I wasn't looking at it. So it's sort of an off gesture, but I'm still giving it focus on saying, just pick one. And I'm showing you which one. Now that is one small thing and it might sound silly, isolated, but if you do a couple of those things and you stack them onto each other, it will become almost impossible for you to not pick up that object that I wanted. You don't know what I'm going for and therefore you don't know which techniques I'm going to use. And I control the setting compared to in real life. Of course, where, when you have to be use much more blunt methods to break through the noise. Now, writing or reading, maybe that is another very controlled setting. Sure, I, as a writer, I will not know where you are when you're reading this book. Are you going to be on a plane? Are you going to be in bed? Are you going to be alone or in a noise environment? But I do know which words you will inhale. And by using associative words, words that almost sound like something else, I can trigger sort of a subconscious thought process in your head by not talking about that, just doing it close enough. So that will be somewhere in your head if I want to. I can have you say very clear of things that I don't want you to discover yet by using another language than the one you would associate with whatever it is I want you to stay clear of for the moment. And I'm very interested in how language and words work in the mind and how they trigger areas. And as a writer, you can use that. And as a mentalist, I think that's great fun. When I'm writing my crime trilogy now with, with Camilla Lechberg, those books, you know, they're set up as one big mentalist show, every single book, and also the entire trilogy is one big illusion. So I'm thinking very, very much about these things, how to not only have a proper code or a cipher or, or mystery for them to solve, but also how to fool the mind of the reader. I think that in the real world of a book, the experience is mostly, even though it's a visual oral process through imagining the words, but it's the written word. So you have this chance to isolate the senses towards those who are geared to taking in the world that way. Mm. And in the unpredictable circumstances that you find yourself in in the day, you encounter many individuals, whereas you say the way we perceive the world, we may all have varying perceptions of the world. And then also as individuals, there is wide variance. I mean, your son is a musician and obviously you're a writer, so like you have those strengths. Different people have senses that they favor mm -hmm. and that they might be more vulnerable or more sensitive to. Like they would pick up all the details visually. Some people sure. are some writers, I can say, actually don't think in that way always no. so visually. You know, when you're meeting someone, how are you initially assessing how to communicate with them best? How, or if you, if it's a situation of influence, how to know, is that the one? Oh, is, are sounds are going to be something that they will be sensitive to? A couple of years back, like, like 15 years back maybe, I was very keen on that, trying to figure out, is this a visual person, an auditory person, or a tactile person, and so on. And I don't do that as much anymore. What I do do, 
especially if it is in a situation where influence is going to take part, maybe it's an important meeting or something, I will make sure that all the senses are stimulated. So no matter which this person favors, that their requirements are going to be met. There will be a visual presentation, there will also be a spoken presentation, and you will get a printout to hold in your hands. So they will all be there, and by doing that, I don't have to try to figure out your preferred way. The idea, of course, is that we adjust our way of communicating to the person we're communicating with. Hopefully we're doing that. And that not only does it tie into body language and such, but also the things you're talking to. Hopefully, if you are not interested in looking at pictures, I would hope that I stop showing you pictures, that it comes as a natural thing. Yeah. And then there was the psychopathy test. People mm. were fascinated that, is this person that I know, are they a psychopath or are leaders? Yeah, they all are. They all are. <laughs> no, but it was interesting because on the one hand, the skills, the attributes that were assessed, and I've looked at the list, I haven't taken it, but <laughs> it seemed like on the one hand, like it could be used negatively, but on the other hand, let's say the high-functioning psychopathic mm. individual seemed like it's a form of intelligence to have an awareness and a vigilance towards the perceptions of others. The bad thing was like having the absence of feeling. Yeah. But the one thing, it's sort of like a machine, like that's what's needed. That's what I'll perform. I don't have any emotional engagement in this. So I'll just take what I need. Yeah. That's something that I never really got my head around that, that it, those two sort of seems to come together that if you have an emotional detachment for some reason you're also very skilled at understanding social requirements and, and i don't see how how they why they are being paired that way or maybe that is in the definition of a psychopath maybe if you just if you don't have an ability for empathy or fear but you're not socially aware either then you're not a psychopath then you're just i don't know failure on the one hand you take it up to a certain level these are attributes and skills that will advance you. Yeah. I mean, you do need that undercurrent of empathy, but yeah. like, I guess in the extreme psychopath case, it's that they use this only to get what's good for them, not for the greater good or for considerations for others. For a psychopath, there is no such thing as a greater good because a psychopath, since they don't have the ability of theory of mind, being able to see the world from someone else's point of view. There is no one else that matters except for them. A psychopath is also by definition a narcissist. So there is no greater good. There's only the good for that person. And if you have that sort of mindset, well, everyone in the world is really just a by-player in the film about me, then of course it becomes much easier to do with people as you see fit. I mean, even today, Bill Gates announced that AI is going to replace many people's jobs. And we are really facing many interesting but important ethical questions about governance and mm -hmm. AI. And of course, we've seen how it's transformed our lives in these last decades. As you think about the future and technology, how it helps us, how we should perhaps protect ourselves against it. Has it made people to a degree easier to manipulate? Or in what ways? You know, what vulnerabilities? Well... Yes and no. No, because our means of communicating on a subconscious level when it comes to body language and stuff like that. This is something that we've been doing since before we were humans, probably. So it will take a bit longer to, to change that. But it's also something that needs constant practice and constant feedback. And what happens with technology is that we don't have that many physical meetings. And many of these techniques assume that you have a physical meeting. Also, we don't get immediate feedback anymore because we could do it, but we don't have time to think about it because, oh, someone texted me something on my phone. Our mind constantly gets interrupted, which means that we don't give anything really the proper analysis that maybe should be given.
But also because of the way the media landscape is today and with AI and so on, confirmation bias is such a huge thing today. I mean, social media is basically built around that. Oh, so this is what you think of the world. Well, here's 10 people who think just the way you do. Listen to them and no one else. So, and that is, of course, a great way to manipulate people, tell them that they're right and have them go off in their own little bubble. And we're constantly being surveyed in ways mm. that we don't understand. And we're constantly being monitored. And it's great making the technology companies wealthy. But also speaking of these five or six senses, technology has allowed us to know so much, know in mm. data sense and know in just have access to information that we didn't mm. have through books in the same quantities, right? It's a little blinding, but we're looking like forward, like our senses are narrowed on this little square, but then we forget we have this embodied intelligence yeah. that in some ways can be, not people who are, are dancers as much, or people who are still very physical, but we forget this 360. And I do fear that sometimes we forget about the intelligence that's embodied intelligence. I completely agree with you. And I also think that that also ties into Thing I mentioned earlier about us not giving things enough time to really dissolve into our being. For instance, music. Music today has become this sort of commodity that it's something that is supposed to be on in the background while you're working and you have your playlist on a streaming service which is designed in a way so you can't even find whatever you listened to a month ago. It's constantly a new thing. When I grew up, and this is going to be, this going to sound so old now, but when I grew up, you bought an album, you got home, and you listened to it once, and you said, oh, I didn't really get that, and you listened to it again, and you try to be in there and live in those songs and in that music, and all of a sudden you found, oh, hang on, now I understand what, why they're doing this. That's fantastic. And it took on a world on its own. Now, everyone is not into music. I am quite a lot. But my point is that all of that kind of process takes time. It's the same thing with everything that has to do with, well, basically everything that has to do with being our corporeal knowledge, our physical knowledge of things and physical understanding, our intuitive understanding of things. That is a process that takes time and it gets interrupted by the constant flow of information. And this is not me saying, this is scientists saying so. Our media input is like 90% we read something on a screen. It probably doesn't have to be like that, but that's what it became. And as you say, there's so many other, other ways to gain information than, than reading. Best case scenario, we'll, we'll listen to a film. Well, at least there's some motion and colors and there's some audio to it as well, but it's still flat and it's on that screen. I'm not sure if we're diminishing our other sense, but we are not taking care of them. I'm fascinated what happens when we lose one of our senses or the impaired sense, like with blindness. So that like you have the strength of, of hearing, you have the, mm. the absence, as you say, the empty spaces, which are mm. so fruitful for imagination, creativity, and you think of the origins of the great mythologies, or if, if you're a person of faith, perhaps you don't believe their stories, but we didn't know what kept the sun in the sky or the reason for the different seasons. Mm. So we made up stories to help make sense of it. So the lack of knowledge sets a spark in a mm. way. Yeah, I mean, I love knowledge. I love looking up stuff and learning about stuff. But for me, that doesn't make the world any less magical, mysterious, quite the opposite, actually. And I find, you know, whatever I read about, whether it be, I don't know, microbiology or research for the crime books, we stumble on so strange things, but, but they're all, it's all a story. And sparks, as you say, for, for further stories. The world is such an imaginative place. 
I recently had an interview with Andrew Magnusson and because he's worked with scientists and talking about the death of the first glacier in Iceland mm. and no one could care. No one could care right. that they lost a glacier. So you needed the poets and the writers to say, yep. here's a monument for that. So now we can care. I'm wondering because some people have an apprehension of like, say if somebody hypnotized them and they feel, oh, they're vulnerable, right? And then I've spoken to some and maybe not even thinking of their process of training and learning as a, one of self-hypnosis, like musicians who need to practice mm-hmm. all those thousands of hours so that it becomes automatic. So they, they're sort of sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. That's such a positive element. It becomes a self-hypnosis to the repetition. Mm. It, it seems like a very similar process. Could you speak a little bit about those positive elements of the techniques that you may apply in, in your mentalism than how that's used in the arts or other fields? Well, every tool for influence can be used for good or bad. It's just about how you want to influence someone. If you want to influence someone's emotional state, you can make them sad, but you could also make them happy. If you want to give someone a positive experience, you're using the same tools. And again, most of the tools that I'm using, even are tools that we are using on a day-to-day basis. But I guess if I wanted to guide someone through a, a positive experience and to bring them into a state of creativity, I would adjust their body posture, which I would do by first creating, as it's called, rapport with them. We're using sort of the same body language, which means that when I change my edit, you will change yours. And then I will find something for us to laugh at because serotonin is amazing for the brain. I did a test for a TV in Sweden when I did justice in terms of creativity. And this is, in the US especially, a very, very sensitive area. But I will use touch because we are a species now who are afraid of touch. And that's horrible because there are so many things that are hardwired into physical touch. It lowers our levels of cortisol or stress hormone and adrenaline. It gives us a sense of calm. Touch is amazing, but now we're in this no-touch society, which I think is quite horrible, actually. I understand the intentions are good, but the results can be catastrophic, I think. We would use words which are associated with positive things. There was a study made and it's been replicated a lot of times where participants had to fill in crosswords. And um, hidden in those crosswords were certain trig words. So one group got words like tired, old, bitter, and so on. And the other group got words like energetic, fun, happy, creative. And then they had to give the finished result to someone in in another room. And they measured the time it took the students to go to that room. The ones with positive words got there much quicker because just by being exposed to words like tired and old and bitter and slow, in order for their brains to understand those words, it it had to engage with them and make them a bit so. And the guys with the positive words, if there was something in the way, you know, they took care of that and nothing stopped them. So I would make sure to use the proper words that we need to engage those cognitive areas in our minds. Having said all this, There is a tendency, I've seen, that science finds something. If we laugh, we get a higher level of serotonin, and we know that that's good for our brains because serotonin makes us think more thoughts per second, which also means that more creative thoughts and more problems on its own. Yes, in theory, but is the level of serotonin you get from a good laugh, is it really high enough to make a difference in real life? Or is it just a measurable thing, but it doesn't really mean anything in real life? I got very interested in that. So I did this thing where I had a group of people and first they got to talk about their summer holidays, where they were going for the summer holidays. Then I wanted to put them into a neutral mental state, which meant that I showed them a video clip of a news presenter 
talking about something land. And then I gave them quite a deliberate, ambiguous exercise. On the table, there were some, some papers and pen, different colored pens. On the windowsill, I had some scissors and glue and so on. I pointed to the table and said, do something with the papers. In that first group, every single one of them did a drawing. And they all did it basically the same drawing. It was a palm tree with some water and so because they've been talking about going on a summer vacation. Then I did exactly the same thing with another group. The only difference was that I tried to raise their serotonin levels. I showed them two video clips, one a Jim Carrey thing and one of a laughing baby. Because I wanted to make sure that all of them would laugh for at least 10 seconds. So we watched that and then they got the same exercise, do something with those papers. So the first question I got back was, is it okay if I glue it on the table? And then the one guy were off cutting pieces out of, of the curtains and they made this in, insane creative 3D sculptures and they're really going for it. Of course it could argue, yeah, it only needs one and then that person will inspire the rest of them. That might be true. But even so, the only difference between that group and the first group was that the first group first had a good laugh at something raised their serotonin levels in, in the brains. It was amazing. That's so fascinating. And so these are the positive benefits of a kind of hypnosis, a group hypnosis or a self-hypnosis. I really love it. You know, I'm a painter. I really love it when it's not effortful. You know, you get there, you, when you feel relaxed, you, you can do that. And so some people question the validity of something that's instinctive, right? It's easy. Oh, like play. wow. Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> no, some people do because they think it's not a struggle. You know, they say, oh, writing is hard or whatever. Yeah. This is hard. And of course, like maybe when you're first learning, whatever. And even you, you learn to love the struggle. But I like it when my unconscious, and you're saying mm. you're tapping into people's collective yeah. unconscious here, takes over. It's fun. It's yeah. play. And yeah. this and thing, it can surprise you. I feel like we're so much smarter mm. when we're not fully aware of what we're doing in that yeah, structure. Yeah, absolutely. For me, 80% of the time, writing is a struggle. Well, that struggle prepares me for the rest of 20% of the time where it's just that instinctive flow, where everything just fits into place and I'm just going with it. But I don't think I could have gotten there without the preparations. Sure, yeah. And the preparations, they don't have to be fun. And I think there's also something to be said for the group experience. As you were talking about, ages ago, I played African drums. So I played djembe, which is a, a drum that you squeeze between your knees, basically. You play on top of it. In a drum orchestra, we were like 20, 25 people. We had a couple of different drums and they all had, you know, different stuff to do. But there was always one leader. So what we did was we, we learned a couple of different, quite complicated rhythms. And the leader, he was the guy doing solos. So he was playing the melodies and we were the backing band. But every now and then he would give a signal. He would drum a certain pattern. And that meant that uh, as soon as possible, we're going to change to another rhythm, this particular rhythm. But the rhythms were so complicated so if you ever thought about it consciously or hang on which signal was that which rhythm does it mean and is it supposed to come now or am i going to count to 12 first then you would lose it so all of this would just be you know in, in your muscular memory you know just drumming along you're hearing something and then your body automatically shifts into something else along with 20 other people doing the same thing and that experience was very very special that's when i realized that, oh this is why people are getting into cults because <laughs> we're being this hive mind now but there is something to be said about that and maybe maybe we're losing that a bit well yeah with the focus on individualism mm. and i think that if you give yourself up you can soar higher. It reminds me of the murmuration of birds. These things right. are 
such rapid calculations that it would take a, a genius to plot it out, yeah. but it happens. I do want to go into your book, Cults, though. All right. So how does, because you planted the seed. It's time now. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, I do think that's that sense of community. Mm-hmm. It makes you question, so what made you and Camilla write about? What drew you to that? All right. Well, I think it's because for me as a mentalist, someone who tries to understand human behavior, cults have always been very interesting because there's such a distilled version of control. And for Camilla as a crime writer, of course, the setting of a cult is, you know, right with whatever you want to put in there. So she has always had a big interest in that as well. So for us, it was sort of natural that some part of the trilogy would be about cults because we also had, you know, quite a lot of knowledge about them, from friends and, and so on. I've been interested in cults as long as I've been interested in human behavior, basically, because it is such a distilled version of the world in an evil way. Well, people have that longing for a sense of community. Yeah. And from a legal standpoint, there's that defense of like mind control, where's the culpability lies. I'm just thinking mm. of very famous cases like Manson. Mm. You may describe the cult in your book. Where does the responsibility lie? In a cult, I would say the responsibility solely lies in the cult leader. Perhaps the cult leader is in a closest circle. Because, yeah, most of us want to feel that we belong. If we meet people that say, that, hey, come and belong with us, and we hang out with them, and they bombard us with love, we feel that we are in a safe and happy environment. And then they put some demands on us, and we are happy to go along with those demands because we are in this loving environment. We have no reason to believe that there is some sort of malign force behind this. And also, we are being kept busy, so we're, we're a bit tired all the time, and we're not getting enough food, so we're a bit hungry. So our cognitive capacity is not at its 100%. And then all of a sudden, the, the person that was just loving up until now tells us, well, if you don't shape up, we're going to kick you out. Then you get horrified. Hang on, what happens now? I mean, these people were loving, and now they're not. So how can I aim to please? And also, I can't think properly because I'm hungry and, and I'm overworked. How do you boil a frog? It's that. And the frog has no reason to believe that there's someone turning up the temperature. And it's the same thing in a cult. Anyone could get drawn into a cult. It's not people with frail minds or people who are very seeking of identity. It doesn't have to be. I mean, today, a lot of cults are corporate. You know, they're sales-based, <laughs> yes. but it's exactly the same structure. Mm. So Sometimes they design their facilities so that you don't go home. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's precisely that. Of course, culpability is the person, who, whoever designed it, is the evil one. Um, yeah. You just said you always knew that one of your books would be about the cult. Mm. What was the vision and what does this say as your trilogy about society? Wow, wow. You know what? It's interesting because... When we do interviews, people read in a lot of stuff in our books about about feminism. A lot of journalists thought that our first book was a feminist agenda, and there's a lot of xenophobia in there. Truth to be told, we don't have a message because we write for entertainment. And the world that we write about is a sort of a heightened reality. It's not magical realism, but almost. It's not really our world. It's sort of a Hollywood version of the world. But having said that, it comes from our beliefs and the world we live in. And that place looks a certain way. So it will reflect in the writing. We don't set out to say anything specific about the world and, or society. And we're just happy. You know, you've bought a ticket. Strap in, let's go for the ride. Just today, actually, just before I met you on the plane, someone called this just now out. I think it was the Polish version, I'm not sure. Most people love our books. This person didn't like that we had put in stuff there that this person said was just there for us to 
to talk about xenophobia or something like that. Same. If it was an agenda, also an agenda that this person didn't agree upon. We write the wall that we see it because our books need to take place somewhere. My name is Sarah Dickerson and I am a rising third year student at Syracuse University, majoring in psychology and forensic science. As I was listening to Henrik and Mia discuss cults, I began to reflect on my own time in the troubled teen industry, which if you are unfamiliar is an industry for youth who were struggling in the US that actually originated from one of the most dangerous cults in America, Synanin. Although Synanin was created as a drug rehabilitation center for adults, the troubled teen industry caters itself to youth struggling with mental illness and trauma, not just substance use. After spending almost two years in the industry, I left as a shell of my former self, who constantly went out of my way to please others, as well as trying hard to stay unnoticed. It wasn't until almost a year and a half after my release that I started to realize just how detrimental the industry really was to my psyche and development of self. When Henrique said the phrase, if you don't shape up, we're going to kick you out, I was immediately transported back to my time in treatment. If the adult's opinion was that you weren't getting better, which in their view getting better only meant doing whatever you were told silently and diligently, then they would use the threat of taking us someplace far worse than there to scare us into assimilating to their ridiculous rules and standards. It is true that anyone's mind can be manipulated. You don't realize what's going on until after it happens, because if everyone around you is telling you this is how things should be, you will believe them. What matters is how people use that power, for good or for evil. I hope this question sticks with you as you listen to the rest of the conversation. Now back to the interview. Well, what have you discovered about Sweden and the world and through the writing of your books? I mean, as you look at the legal system, as you look about social inequity and various issues, and you say feminism, well, gender issues. I want to say that writing my non-fiction books made me much more aware of these things. I'm used to having a, a female boss and so on. I work in quite women-centric environments. But working with Camilla, who is by far the most selling and well-known author in, in Sweden and one of the largest writers in Europe, I, as a white middle-aged man, appalled and horrified You know, when I see what she which she meets in her daily life. And this is a very privileged person. She's famous, she's well-known. And still to see the difference in how men or women are treated by society, I thought that we were better than this. And their response when I said first said that, well, yeah, well, all men think that, but this is what it is. And that has just, that has really given me, well, some pause. Sweden prides itself on being the most equal country when it comes to, to the sexes and salaries and what have you. Really, it's horrible. So there's two movements now, I feel. One of them is, you know, they're very, very progressive. They talk about their pronouns, and create a more fluid thing, which is very interesting because that means that the whole inequality debate isn't valid if we don't have anything, if there's no binary system. But then it feels like there's another movement that's extremely binary. Maybe it's just me seeing this now for the first time in my life, but I'm seeing even in Sweden so much inequality. So it's just, and it's 2023 now. So what have we or I learned about society by writing these books, actually by working very close with a very famous woman has taught me a thing or two about the world today, which I did not expect in the least. 
So I wonder how is the process? How does it seem together, knitted? Yeah, well, the thing is, we didn't know either because both Camilla and I, we don't like working with other people. So how do we do this now? There's two of us. And so the way the story came about was that I had this idea about a mentalist, Vincent, and I had this ordeal that I wanted to put him through. And I discussed it with Camilla, who's always been a longtime friend. And she added some ideas. And then we realized that, oh, hang on, we actually have something together here. Then we need to write it together. Some people assume that it's Camilla writing and I'm sort of providing her with information. But that's not how it is at all. What we've been doing is that since we had sort of the overall structure, we meet once a week. And then we look at, okay, where are we now? What are our characters doing? And what do they need to do next? So we find 10 like scenes, we don't call them chapters because most of the times they're not, but they're scenes that need to happen. And then she goes away and writes five of them and I go away and I write five of them. And if she just wrote about some of the police personnel perhaps in the book, then it's my turn to write about the police. If I wrote about the mentalist, then she's going to write about the mentalist. So it won't be that I'm always writing the same character and she's not writing the same character. So we're doing that and then we meet up and then we're like, okay, where are we now? What's happened? What's going to happen next? And when that's done, we send each other each other's texts and then we're free to change whatever we want. So in the final book, we've written about 50% each of the text, but we don't even know any longer who wrote who some of the times because we've been both in there and changing things around because we wanted to find a unique voice that was our voice. We wanted it to be different from if you open another book just by Camilla or just by me. This needed to have its own voice. That's beautiful. And it leaves the mind open, creates greater areas for play when it's shared effort. Yeah, because if one of us gets stuck, the other one can always go, well, how about this then? I think this is really, really important. Since we know each other for so long, there's no egos to upheld. There's no prestige or anything in that. The better idea is always the better idea, no matter who it came from. We don't care as long as it's best for the story. I think that mindset is really, really important. Or it has been for us, at least. And I think increases the possibility for surprise because even after a while, a very, very talented writer, they can develop a certain tells. That yeah, people... a pattern. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And also what, what happens a lot of the time for us was that you came up with an idea. That, oh, great. And that makes me think of this. And then I developed that. And then you go, oh, and that means that boom. And then we end up somewhere completely different where neither you or I knew that we were going to end up. Mm -hmm. So it's been such a luxury. But that's also why the books are so big, because yeah. we can't stop writing. Yeah. And now when I'm writing by myself again, because now I'm writing two fiction novels by my own, because we just finished our third one in Sweden, I really, really miss all of that yeah. to be able to just, because it is such a sense of play when there's two of you. And... Because if it becomes too much responsibility on your shoulders, you can just give it to the other person for a bit. But now I can't. Now it's just on my shoulders. And yeah. that is not always so playful. Yeah, it's the, the work comes into it. But you discover a little bit more about yourself. It's very interesting how we guard our cultural values. I was speaking with a psychoanalyst poet. We were talking about language. And mm. perhaps in the Anglo-Saxon world, it's not something that one misses, the genders and language automatically when we are speaking French, of course, we're, everything is masculine or feminine. And I don't know enough about Swedish. To, it's the same thing. That's hard to get rid of, mm. too, if you're talking about people who are defending their right. I think it, in some ways, language prepares the mind for those gender divisions. Yeah. Like on some level. Now, you find that Anglo-Saxon countries have been among the more progressive. And I think that in some ways, maybe not having a neutral language. Mm. 
that might in some ways make it easier. You're not, sure. you're not losing things no. in English. There's not the gender of each word. And in some ways, that's really a pity. It's a loss, he said. So he sees it on the level of language and as a poet and the textures and the different things you can embed in that. We had this discussion in Sweden a couple of years ago where they did the same thing in the English language. I don't remember the English word now, but instead of saying his or her, they introduced a neutral word mm -hmm. that could mean both. And I was very much opposed to this because from my point of view, that was just what was information, whether it was his or hers, now just became noise because it was a word that didn't add any new information because it was deliberately devoid of gender. But I changed that completely because I realized that, well, that standpoint sort of assumed that there was still a his or her to be placed there. But if there isn't, if there's a they rather, well, then maybe that neutral word is actually more applicable because if you have 10 different gender pronouns to choose from, maybe one is the better way to go. I think just being accustomed to something, it's always been this. I like those words. It can be confusing. It's harder in French. It's yeah. harder to do that. There is also then a movement. This is just getting into the granularity of it. What is feminist advances? So in France, there were not many words for female professions. It would right. be a, a same male. Thing. Yeah, yes. same thing in Sweden. A male. Yeah. And so they went around giving the feminine version so that that would be an option so that you could see yourself in that career. Now, this makes no sense in no. English where like the female actresses, you know, actresses like to be called actors. Yeah. They want to be called the, the male version yeah. of the, the word, right? Yeah. And in France, they're fighting for, no, I want to be called... You know, écrivaine. Yeah. So they want to see very much that they're a woman within a role that was only allowed for men. Yeah. So it's so strange. That's a cultural thing as well. Then I love challenges like this as a it's, writer. Okay, if I can't say his or her, can I describe this person using other words, conveying still the meaning that I will need to get? Particularly when you might be describing the the criminals or the the murderers. Yeah. Or, yeah. How do I describe something being vague enough? Yes, shadow. In film, you can do it just by the silhouette or something. Yeah. Often is they will describe if the, the killer is a man or a woman, you can't tell. It's in the shadows. Yeah. So these are all these shadow games, games of perception. And I should say, I thought it was interesting that you said you thought you would say that you found out more about the world that we live in through the writing of your nonfiction books. But then you get a lot of the specificity through your fiction books mm. for people to explore your variety of non-fiction books there about the power games, the art of reading minds. Yeah, so the, well, two things really. They're all about, first of all, subconscious communication, body language and so on, yes. social skills, how we can read people and what to do with that information in our interaction in order to create better meetings. That ties into influence techniques, what to use in a good way and what not to use and so on. But that meant that I dig deep into all the research about the human psyche and what makes us do the things we do. A lot of those things were really, really eye-opening to me, but that maybe not so much about the world we live in as us as flawed and brilliant human beings. So speaking about zooming out and how this influence can be used to create a better society, a more equal society, or ensure a future for ourselves and for our children, for future generations, I'm thinking that there might be ways to use this influence, or even I'm open if there's solutions there that 
a mass hypnosis <laughs> to make us, you know, one thing, overcome, how do you say, solve the, the climate crisis, mm. bring world leaders together around the questions of war and conflict and work towards making the world a better place of fighting and polluting the planet with wars, which are not only costly in lives, but also the natural environment. The criminal justice system, what is the best way to reform someone who has committed a crime? There are many different ways, but how can we use the positive influence, not the dark arts that some people right. feel it could be. We can kind of see that. But well, First of all, I think you have to have realistic expectations. You have to understand that it's going to take a long time. As you said, world leaders or whenever there's a company interest is on, so all of a sudden, if there's an economic systems or corporation, where that, and you have all that to battle as well. And money talks another language. We were talking about high-functioning psychopaths earlier. And isn't true that a lot of corporate leaders and also higher politicians are hung by high-functioning psychopaths. That's why they have managed to get the career they have. It doesn't mean that they're evil. It's just that it means that the techniques that we have been discussing might not work as well. But I think, for example, Richard Taylor, who came up with the term nudging, is really onto something where it's all about doing slight but many adjustments in sort of nudging our behavior towards something. We're going to do this now. We're going to get you there in increments. This was something I loved. I visited a school in Sweden, and they got a new chef at the school, and he wanted the children to eat more vegetarian food. And he had probably read a book about nudging because he understood that Whenever we're given a choice, whatever is the pre-chosen one, often goes with that one. Yeah. For instance, if you're going to have, go and have lunch, there's the daily lunch, and then you have the alternatives. You go for the daily, the daily lunch because it's easier. Most people still have the, the factory set ringtone on their phones because why change it? There's so much other stuff going on in the world. So what he did was that he, first he changed the layout in the school cafeteria. When you stood in line at school cafeteria, the first thing that met you were, were the, the chicken or fish or whatever, the potatoes and then some veggies. And at the very, very end was the vegetarian alternative. He put that in the front and it changed the menu. So instead of having Monday lunch meatballs, vegetarian alternative lasagna, he shifted it around. Monday lunch vegetarian lasagna, meat alternative meatballs. Just by doing that, the kids started to eat vegetarian food instead because they didn't really care what they ate. They just wanted to be as effortless as possible. The students did not change their behavior. They still ate the Monday lunch from the first tray, but he changed the premise. And I think those kinds of things are very, very interesting. I feel like we've waited so long and we're closing in on the 1.5 degrees of change. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. We were no. in a rush for time, I know. <laughs> but I feel like if we had really been more serious, and if those gradual nudges we could have been doing them i feel like now people are just saying oh well if we don't the planet is just going to make us or it's going to be autocratic because those changes will be happening they'll have to happen it's just a matter of us accepting it has to be done just like with covid or the mask it's so difficult because it's so abstract yeah because it's in the future even though it's not anymore but it's still in the future and it's not something really you can see or touch we don't understand anything that is not about us in the immediate now that we can you know get a grip on this hurts me now i walk outside and it's warmer than it should be oh this affects me now i can feel it in my body now i'm getting concerned Unfortunately, when it comes to the climate, then it's too late. We do have to make those sacrifices at some stage. Some people are already unfairly experiencing that pain now. One of the problems is, of course, that why I'm so fond of nudging is, is you influencing yeah. other people in a very 
delicate way, the things you are talking about, that means that you yourself have to decide, I'm going to use this technique now on me because I want to change me. Well, if you've already come to that conclusion, the battle is already won. Yeah. The battle is, of course, about all the people who are not prepared to do that sacrifice yet. Don't go around switching off people's pain meters. If everyone decided that they can give up their car, public mm. transport or whatever, until we have it, that they're all electric and all the electric is powered by renewable energy, you know, that'd be painful for a lot of people. Not possible in a lot of locations, but it would really slow things down. People use it on these individual levels, quitting smoking or eating less. I would welcome that being something that we took it seriously. And the other thing that I mentioned, and since you write crime novels, is what is the best way to approach the penal system or reforming people who might have a mindset or might have been born into difficult circumstances and found themselves committing crimes? And what is the best way? How can we use some of these skills that you have to make people change their lives? Change yeah, the penal possible? system, well, that's far too big a question. And also, I think the penal system is different depending on which country you're talking oh, yes. about. So I don't have an answer to that at all. I believe in Sweden, I think it's less harsh than, say, in the U.S., that in terms of rehabilitation. But in some countries, of course, it's so harsh. You want the people who are punished to experience pain, but they're not maybe considering the end game of when they would eventually be released. Mm and re-enter society. And so hopefully you want them to become a part of society so that they could contribute in a good way. I don't know if that's even something that's been considered in terms of part of the rehabilitation process inside, because it's about changing the mindsets. Of yeah, the yeah. I do know that the first book I, I wrote, The Art of Reading Minds, was one of the top favorite at the uh, maximum security <laughs> prisons in Sweden. No, I don't know. For good or <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The staff working there was a bit concerned. <laughs> you probably have more statistical research and firsthand having met people, but some people commit crimes by circumstances of birth. It's just sure. something that happens and they need to survive. And there's others. It's so interesting that you did mention touch because you read those studies too, the studies where children raised mm. in orphanages with absence of touch. It's very hard to you get die. that back. Yeah. Do you die or, yeah, yeah it just you can't touch them later. No. I can also imagine situations where the only time you're being touched as a child is when you're being punished. And yeah. then, of course, touch becomes an extremely negative thing yeah. for the rest of your life, unless you get reprogrammed. Right. But you said about people committing crimes because of being born into a situation. We, we have a situation in Sweden now where the gang violence is spiraling completely out of control. And the problem with that is that a lot of them are minors because then they can't be touched by the legal system. So now we have like 40-year-olds shooting each other at restaurants. One main thing is that when you're 14 or 17, your frontal lobes are not fully developed. You do not have a rational mind. You're completely controlled by emotions and you don't have a sense of cause and consequence of your actions putting a gun in the hands of someone who cannot think into the future and who is filled with hormones and is emotionally controlled is a recipe for disaster. Then it doesn't matter what the penal system does because the problem is there. Their mental development combined with their assignments in the gang. And that goes back to the lure of the cult as another kind of cult. We gain our sense of meaning from our work, 
our family, our community. And so as you look into the future, a lot of people are nervous about AI and chat, GPT, mm. and the loss of jobs. What are the jobs of the future? We're not preparing adequately. So what happens when you take away, perhaps the cult, you take people, take their work away, what gives your life meaning? So does that mean we'll be more prey to this kind of control or cult? Well, are we sure that AI will take our jobs away or will it change them into something else? I mean, that's what happened when in, in this industrial revolution. The industry didn't take people's jobs away. They changed them into something else. And maybe that's what's going to happen now as well. But into what, we can't really see yet. There are some ideas about it, but so I don't know. And I think the AI thing, we've been talking about it for so long. And then the technology, it feels like it just caught up with us overnight. Yeah. And now we're, it's there and we all, oh, but we haven't done talking yet. Yeah, Nick Bostrom, who runs the Future of Humanity Institute, yeah. as you think you may know, at Oxford. So the governance is really important because what's being designed presently, what comes to market, we know, we mm. only hear about so many years later. So what's being designed now, and because they're private companies as well, mm. We can't really see behind the curtain. You know, people are predicting that, yeah, there's a utopian side of it if the governance is in place. But if it's not, not everyone is ready for the knowledge economy. That's certainly what happened. Jobs were sent away to other countries, industrial revolution and all that. And it was nice. But there's also kind of a pleasure when you see this, as you say, people going back to traditional jobs, mm. uh, wanting to get in touch with the land, yeah. you know, the things that actually gave a sense of joy. We actually feel happier around nature and these things. So I'm hopeful. I think that if people are find meaningful leisure, if they're lucky, then they want to be artists or something. And that's great. It can free them up. But it's still a bit utopian. I think that it's very prescient for you to be writing about cult and these forces mm. that come in to fill those spaces in people's lives. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. But that could be an interesting development, really. I think it's we are so caught up in this AI thing. So, so it's very, very difficult, at least for me to get a sense of perspective on it. You have to remind yourself constantly that, I don't know if this is the terminology, it's narrow AI and broad AI. Narrow AI is AI that has been assigned one specific task and it does that task and that task only. It might do it by machine learning, but it does that. And the people being afraid of the singularity of Skynet or the AI taking over, the intelligent AI, that's broad AI. And as far as I know, no one is currently if not secretly, but at least not openly developing broad AI at the moment. So the AI we're dealing with now is sort of stupid AI. It takes knowledge that we created. It could be paintings or it could be poems or whatever. And it gives you a distinct version of that. And that's what it does. And I think we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. that this is sort of a sieve. Whatever AI function you're using, it just brings together other stuff and presents them to you in a distilled package. Yeah, that they become assistive technologies. It's something to think about. Right now, there's the writer's strike. Yeah. And one of the things they're concerned about is AI. They're already hard done by certain things. But I always thought like writers or the arts, that was a very personal thing that couldn't be replaced. I think that the thing is that we've become so close to our machines and there's neural link and all these things that a great degree of the population doesn't care almost. Right. They're like, oh, okay, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's the same. I mean, I've heard music that's made that way. And it doesn't appeal to me, no. but a lot of people are tone deaf to it. Then we're back when we talked about music having a different role today. Yeah. That it's this sort of thing that, yeah, 
you're supposed to dance to it or have it in the background, but you're not really supposed to listen to it. And as long as you don't really listen to it, I suppose AI music is fine. But it's, if you want to listen to music, it's going to be empty. As you think about mm. the future and teachers, what you tell your children, yeah. what for you is the importance of the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? When it comes to arts or the understanding of arts, people need to develop enough to find that place where they understand it for themselves. And they could get into different things. It could be like my son playing jazz drums, like my oldest son being very, very invested in literature. But whatever gives you that self of otherworldly pleasure that you can't really put into words because that is what arts do. So when I was a kid, a word like Asperger didn't exist. If it had, I would probably, you know, gotten a diagnosis, but I didn't. So I've always been very up in my head. That's why I couldn't properly read body language and do all those intuitive things because I was so rational, I was overthinking. And then when I was like 29, I saw my first ever live performance of modern dance because I'd never been to see a modern dance performance before. Why should I? And it hit me so hard because it communicated to me on a completely primal level. and It bypassed all my conscious analysis of whatever was happening on that stage and just became this emotional experience. And that is what art does for you. And that also gives you an understanding of the world and of existence that will be unique for you. You can question society, you can plant new thoughts and, and so on by using arts, but that raw experience is something that makes us uniquely human. So I think the arts are deadly important and whether they have a message or not. And I would love for people to continue to rediscover that and to give themselves enough time to discover that and not go, oh, I have an 11-year-old son and sometimes I want to show him a film or it could even be a 20-minute thing uh, that someone did that's on YouTube. And if he's not hooked in 10 seconds, his finger starts to move to the screen to start scrolling. And said, no, hang on, you wait. And he waits. And even though he gets, might get immersed in a narrative, after like 15 minutes, he will still change it to something else. Like almost by instinct, by reflex. This has gone on long enough. That horrifies me because... If we don't give our mind enough time to process certain thoughts, we will never come to important realizations about ourselves and the world. So just understand things in general. It takes time. Time is one of the most important commodities we have, and we're wasting it because we assume that we don't have enough time. It's completely the other way around. If you look into the natural world, if you study a leopard and you think he's doing nothing, mm. right? You know, it's gathering the energy. We have to gather our energy yeah. and only use it when it's needed. You know, like, and then it can take off. Mm. We can't be taking off all the time or we exhaust ourselves. I think that that's some of the thing with the sleep deprivation and the things we're experiencing. So your books and your life and your example, I think it really awakens our minds to the wonder, the magic oh, around us. Yeah. We'd love for them to do so. It's really true because we don't appreciate these things enough. And that does take that time and that mm. deep attention. So thank you, Henrik Fixius, for your important work on human behavior, influence, psychological illusionism, and of course, your writing that help us understand our own minds and the minds of others so that we can gain insight and create positive futures. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. 
The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Ann Michowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Sarah Dickerson. Digital Media Coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.